When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see as Jesus, come and see, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Yeah, I'll just jump right into it and want to begin by asking, uh, what is your go-to comfort in life and death? Um, I want to first thank everyone for your heartfelt condolences, prayers, and support during this time, and for speaking for myself, but also for our family, uh, we're deeply comforted, sincerely. I can honestly say that the unexpected sudden passing of my dad has been uh, thus far uh, my heart's deepest pain in life. Um, did a lot of sobbing and crying, um, especially the first week. And in a good way, hopefully I can hold it together uh, during this sermon. But uh, just thanks for grace in advance if if somehow I get surprise attacked by uh, just a wave of, of sorrow. And as I have reflected, as I said, um, losing my dad, it certainly has been the deepest pain in my life so far. And I can only imagine that the loss of a child or your beloved spouse uh, might hurt more. Um, it's been almost two weeks since I received the unexpected a tragic news on New Year's Day that my dad passed away of a heart attack. Uh, and so New Year's Day will never be the same for me. Uh, and so naturally, I've needed and sought out comfort the past two weeks. And it's been a good test of what truly comforts me. And so I want to ask you as well, what is your go-to comfort in life and death? Uh, if I'm honest, First, just as a fellow human being, I have earthly comforts that I look to as well, whether it's food, people, just being entertained or whatnot. And I can definitely say, though, that all those things fall short, especially when you lose the dad that you love. But nevertheless, it's been a good time to test what truly comforts me. And so I shouldn't be surprised that as I was seeking out comfort, uh, my memory was jogged by the Heidelberg Catechism. And if you're not familiar with it, 
It's a wonderful Q&A tool, and I recommend it to you personally and as a family. It could even be just a, a good way to gather around for family worship. And just a, a series of uh, questions and answers to go through every week of the year. And so maybe you're familiar with uh, question one. And question one says, uh, what is your only comfort in life and death? This is how it starts, the whole teaching. It's very profound and pastoral with a very real life relevant question. And the answer is equally, if not exceedingly, profound and pastoral. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, why is this so comforting? Because Zach Uranius, who, the, the man who mostly penned this catechism some 500 years ago, he had wisdom that's still true today. And he got right to the core of what comforts our souls the most. And it's basically to belong and to be loved. And that certainly has been what has, has comforted me well uh, thus far since the passing of my dad. A sense of where I belong and, and where I feel love, that comforts. Now certainly, and thankfully, the catechism gets at the most important belonging and the most important to be loved, which is in Christ. And so today, partly for my own comfort, but certainly uh, to help us all prepare for the passing of loved ones, or perhaps to minister to you if you've already lost loved ones and you're still missing them. Uh, I want to preach from this account of Jesus attending his dearest friend Lazarus's funeral. And today, my prayer for myself and all of us that as we meditate on this scripture, that uh, there'd be some response by faith from the depths of our hearts, something to talk to God, to want to relate to him some way similar to these words, Lord, be my, be my greatest comfort in life and death. And so I want to ask uh, of the passage, uh, how do I experience the comfort of Christ in life and death? How do I experience the comfort of Christ in life and death? And I want to draw out at least three things that I think John wants us to learn from this account of Jesus showing up late, actually, to Lazarus's funeral. And I think we find comfort in life and death through Christ's community, through Christ's empathy, and through Christ's cross and empty tomb. And so first, through Christ's community. Now, where do we see this? So we start to look at the passage. I love this picture of Martha and Mary's relationship. Sometimes sibling relationships, they, they can either be the best of friends or the worst. And I think there's a little bit of both going on in, in Mar Martha and Mary's relationship, if you read every account of them. But here in the loss of their brother, now, when she, Martha, had said this, she had just had an exchange with Jesus first, and we'll talk about that in a second, Martha went 
and called her sister Mary. And we shouldn't just speed over this. The fact that Martha reaches out to Mary. Martha and Mary, they weren't just flesh and blood, but they're also spiritual sisters because they both believe in Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world, the one that would pay for their sins. And it can't be lost on us that Martha, she reaches out to Mary in faith and wants to encourage her and saying, Jesus is here. Of course, this was happening literally, concretely, but there's something to, to be applied in our own lives as well, that, that we would point each other to Jesus. Mary goes to, Martha goes to Mary, reaches out to Mary. Martha goes to Mary and encourages her in the face of death by letting her know that Jesus is calling for her. And what's more, I'm certain that Martha goes to Mary with a heart filled, in the, even in the midst of her sorrow and grieving, she's filled with hope in Jesus' ability to resurrect. Why? Because we didn't read the passage, but right prior, John takes pains to describe in detail that Jesus reaffirms for Martha her belief in the resurrection, but not only in the resurrection that those who follow Christ will rise, but Jesus himself, he says so clearly, I am the resurrection and the life. I believe she goes to Mary, her heart full, full, overflowing with that truth, even in the midst of uh, her grieving. And so just to look back earlier, this is the exchange earlier, and Martha just skipping to the highlighted portion. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Martha, I don't think she's just putting on an appearance. I do believe these words are sincere. And she's hinting at, Lord, this is how powerful I believe you truly are over life and death, that if you want to resurrect Lazarus, you can. And so Jesus said to her, Jesus said, that's powerful. Jesus speaking his word. And Martha hanging on every one of his words as truth, as eternal, as rock solid. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And we know that Jesus is speaking from an eternal perspective. That on that final day, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so Martha, with just a moment of being able to confess her Jesus and her faith again. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe. Now, this, I, I, what I want you to see is, is community. Faith community in action here. Mary or Martha intentionally reaching out to Mary, pointing her to, to continue to look to Christ for her truest comfort. And this is a theme really throughout all of scripture, but just for sake of time, just to highlight too, I love how Paul, he, he, he brings out the goodness, the, the treasure, the, the true value of even human Christian relationships writing to uh, Philemon chapter 1, or verse 7, for I have derived, this is Paul saying, for I have derived much joy 
and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And so God, in his wondrous way, our our spirituality, it's not just some isolated, you know, going off into your own place, vertical relationship, but the way God has has created and designed uh, our faith life is that we're meant to be there for one another. And so even Paul, the the champion apostle, just the giant of faith, that he finds real joy and comfort from another brother in Christ. And that brother refreshing the hearts of the saints. And so let's not become so super spiritual that we think we don't need each other and myself, uh, that I don't need you in my grieving. and, And whenever one person in our faith community loses someone or is going through something difficult that they don't need us or the one suffering thinking that we don't need people in our lives spiritual maturity will say i need you i need my brother and sister in christ psalm 119:50 this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life now the psalmist here yes looking to God's word for comfort, but how, do we, how are we reminded when we're tempted to forget our hope? How are we reminded of God's promise that gives us life through one another? Through one another. And so, just as an application question, is it in our normal MO? Our, our, our mode of operation? Do we reach out to those in need with our hope in the resurrection through Jesus? My experience outside of the church is that day-to-day our culture is shy, if not at times repulsed, about talking with none, one another about death. Uh, maybe at a funeral, because the context is more appropriate, you, send your condolence to your closest friends, you might reach out. But in general, our culture is shy, if not at times even repulsed. That's been my experience. I mean, put it this way, try bringing up death at the water cooler at work during break, at the dinner table when you're invited over. It's it's not a fun topic. But I can happily share that I've been flooded by Christian brothers and sisters with comfort, and so just seeing the church in action. Uh, But not only in my loss, but my normal, my experience is that the church is a place full of grace, and you're able to talk about these difficult things. And and even ongoing, there's one person I spoke with who studies this stuff says, Albert, it's going to take at least around two years to kind of get to a relatively more like truly processed place, losing your dad. And then all the more imagine for your mom how much longer that will take. Two years, and, and I can't compute that. And I'll just, only time will tell. But in that time, just even a year later, to have Christian brothers and sisters reaching out, saying, how are you processing? Um, how, how, how is your faith growing through this? And how are you continuing to look to Christ uh, as your hope? Now, as we approach one another, uh, to make sure, to, to 
give some guidelines, do we gently and lovingly remind one another to turn to Jesus? To include finding comfort in Jesus, his suffering, his death, our hope in his resurrection, in our overall effort to comfort. Certainly we want to point people to Jesus, but to do it in a gentle and loving manner. But for certain, including this, in our overall effort to comfort those grieving. Now this is kind of getting at how do we receive comfort as well. That's why it's encouraging to see Mary here. And when she heard it, that her Lord was here, Martha told her, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. But we see Mary here rising quickly and going to Jesus. And so Mary models a fitting response to Jesus and his grace, especially in death. And so now as one, one day, or perhaps even now you're going through something difficult in life, perhaps not death, but, but something difficult. Mary here is a fitting response. And, and do, we, do we have a similar response in our suffering, especially in the face of losing a loved one like Mary? Rising quickly, rising quickly, turning to Jesus quickly. What quickens her soul? Jesus. Mary wanted to be comforted by Jesus. And this has been a real good test for me, this first two weeks of having lost my dad. What does my heart first turn to, preeminently turn to, supremely turn to? Do we seek to be comforted by Jesus as a first choice? So what's your honest, question, honest answer to question one of the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and death? And, and be honest. Be honest with God and yourself. And whatever comes up, just confess that. If it's not Christ, then confess that. Say, Jesus, I'm sorry that, that this first comes up as a comfort to me. But thank you for your grace, that you understand me and my humanity, my frailty, my brokenness, even my sin. And that's why the prayer today is, Lord, be my greatest comfort. Keep becoming larger and brighter and bigger in my heart that you would become my greatest comfort. I want you to notice two more encouragements here. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. What, what's, what are the encouragements here? First, again, I want you to see a faith community. Now, I don't know how many of these people had already put their faith in Christ. But certainly they were a faith community with, with general hope in God, in his law, in him sending their Messiah. And so here's a faith community. And so there's something to be said for this, that there was comfort in being in the faith community. That's partly why, you know, some close friends, even my best friend, my wife, Linda, was like, you sure you want to preach today? 
But this is where I'm finding comfort to be with you guys and to be able to just look to God's word together and, and find comfort in Christ together. So thanks for, for letting me. And we see this faith community following Mary in her grief. And so it takes a sweet mix of courage, compassion, and sincere care to, to follow someone into their grieving in specific and, and into their suffering in, in general. And so don't be afraid to ask or be lazy to not ask, how are you? How are you processing? And, and I don't mean this to make this all about me. I'm not saying that because I want you guys to follow up with me. <laughs> if you want to, no problem. But I just mean in general, moving forward, whenever you will face uh, death in your life or, or someone in, close to you faces death, don't be afraid to ask or, or lazy to not ask. How are you? How are you processing? And then have lots of grace for the one grieving to engage or not. If they want to talk, then be that lending ear of, of grace, a gracious lending uh, ear. And, and if they don't, then, then just let them be. But second, there's, there's also potential witness in this. Do you see it? There's potential witness. Um, let me go back to the right slide here. Because they followed her. And where did they follow her to? To Jesus. And so there's potential witness in, in how we grieve and how we look to Christ in our grieving. Uh, I'm asking God for just a, a winsome, humble, gentle courage to, especially with my non-Christian friends, because uh, I've shared with them too, and right off the bat, there a lot of them, just their reaction is different from my believing friends. But even in those conversations, I, I hope to be able to share about my hope and comfort in Christ and why I have a strange mix of grieving with hope. And so I, I hope as they follow me in my grieving that there'll be an opportunity to share with them about my hope in Christ. It's a good thing to show people how we run to Jesus in suffering. But next, I think John wants us to see and be moved by uh, Christ's empathy. How do I experience the comfort of Christ in life and death? Through Christ's empathy. Now, where do we see this in the text? Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if he had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and can you imagine? You really have to picture what's going on. She's, she's crying out, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. She's, she's, I think she's struggling to get those words out through her weeping. Her just painful sobbing. Her hyperventilating. She really means it. If he had been here, my brother would not have died. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And look at Jesus here. John takes pains to include this description. He was deeply moved in his spirit 
and greatly troubled. And this is after the fact that he affirms to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Says that boldly, clearly, declaratively. And yet, having said that, he's deeply moved and greatly troubled in his spirit. The Greek here for deeply moved and greatly troubled, it means snorting with anger. Imagine a black war horse shooting out its steaming breath into the cold night sky. This is the depth of Jesus' troubled spirit. Just the tumult of it. And then two of the most profound and comforting words in all of Scripture. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And just imagine Jesus going to the tomb now. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Why? Why are these two of the most powerfully comforting words in all of the Bible? Because they demonstrate Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. As I've worked through my uncontrollable gut-punching sobbing in the face of the death of my beloved dad, my greatest comfort thus far, and I believe will be for the rest of my life, is that Jesus, in the face of death, also cried and sobbed and felt the mix of anger and sorrow. And we see this even more clearly in John's follow-up description. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. See how he loved him. You need to remember that for the Greeks, there were three or four kinds of love. Agape love, eros love between lovers, uh, uh, storge love, which is like a family love. And then there was a phileo love, friendship love. And this love is see how he phileoed him. See how much of a friend Lazarus was to Jesus. Jesus was to Lazarus. Just to pause right there too, just to appreciate the fullness of Jesus's humanity. In today's colloquialism, Lazarus was Jesus's bro, his kindred spirit, his chum, his buddy. We need to appreciate that Jesus was deeply relational, deeply human, someone you would enjoy having around as a day-to-day friend. We need to appreciate that Jesus deeply loved as a friend. And so how does Jesus empathize? First here, I think Jesus understands why death is so painful. Here's what I mean. In the face of my dad's loss, I was surprised by how I realized how much I actually loved this this man more than I realized. As I was just sucker punched and and surprised out of left field of just all the sobbing and tears that I didn't expect. Because my dad and I, we, we had the best of times and the worst of times. And so I, I was surprised by how much I actually love this man and miss him. 
I think something similar is going on here with Jesus. That's why they're saying, see how he loved him. You don't sometimes realize how much you love someone until they're gone. And so there's a hole, a loss, a void in Jesus's heart. I know that that's a profound statement. He's perfect. He's God. And yet he weeps. Jesus is not a charlatan. He's not putting on a show. He's not just putting on the right reaction to round out his theology and make his statement that he's the resurrection of life more dramatic. No, this is a sincere, honest response from Jesus. And in a real reverential sense, I really mean this with reverence to God. Even Jesus cannot replace my dad in my heart. Only my dad can fill that hole because I can only be loved by my dad by my dad. I think Jesus understands that. I'm not saying that Jesus can't cover that and heal that and that his love is the greatest love that I need. I'm saying all of that. Jesus is the one I worship. He heals and he is the greatest love and greatest comfort. But I think Jesus understands what I mean reverentially. Otherwise, he would not have wept. But I think there's also a profoundly theological processing in Jesus's heart and mind. Jesus understands why death is the most painful injustice because even Jesus weeps. He's sobbing here. That's, that's the Greek here. He's sobbing uncontrollably as well. Why? Put it another way. Why, why, does, why does death hurt so much? Why does death, especially of a loved one, hurt so much? Because we were never meant to die. We were never meant to die. Jesus, above all, understands that he who created this universe and ultimately he created us he created us to live forever with god's family in god's love and for god's glory and jesus understands that death is the most painful consequence of sin entering our existence jesus understands that death is painful because death therefore it's the most egregious affront to our humanity as god meant us to be In the garden, we were to live forever. That was God's plan. Death is the lowest insult to our identity as God's beloved creation. Death is the most malicious assault against the image of God in us. As image bearers, the the image of God in us. God in his divinity, he cannot die. And yet God In his humanity, he did. And so finally, how do I experience the comfort of Christ in life and death? That's why we finally and ultimately have to look to Christ and his cross and empty tomb. It's not enough for Jesus to empathize. And I hope, nevertheless, I'm being deeply comforted by Jesus's just uh, empathizing nature. But it's not enough for Jesus to empathize. Have you ever been in those, maybe at work, you know, your bunch of work is, is dumped on you and, and you're, you're grinding, you're working hard. Maybe even you feel like, you know, why isn't the company hiring more? 
uh, hands to help spread the load and, and you're suffering uh, and all you get are just some kind words. You're doing a great job. Pat on the back. Keep at it, you know. There's no one else except you who could do this the way you do. And so you receive all these kind words, but what you really want is a practical helping hand. And so similarly, that's the, the, the negative potential of this situation. Sure, Jesus empathizes and cries, but what will he actually do? And so we, we see skeptical people. I think there's skepticism in, in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What are the onlookers actually saying? This is their way of asking the age-old skeptical question, if God is all-loving, then why is there still suffering and evil in the world? But their, their question has an added layer of skepticism. Do you, do you see it? They acknowledge and perhaps appreciate that Jesus performed certain level of miracles in the past. He healed the blind man. But they, they're mocking between the lines. He failed in his timing. He failed in arriving late, and they assume that he's not powerful enough to raise the dead. Sure, if he had arrived on time, then perhaps he could have healed Lazarus' sickness, but raised him from the dead? And so what Jesus does next, I mean, first he declares his eschatology earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. There is life after death in me. And then he shows his practical theology. He empathizes and pastors and weeps. But now he declares his omnipotence and sovereignty. He brings death into submission. And we know we're not going to get deep into it, but right after this, he raises Lazarus from the dead. But what can't be lost on us is that even though with Lazarus' resurrection, while awesome and praiseworthy, it was only a temporary time extension on his earthly life. We got to remember that. Lazarus, I mean, I, I just try to put yourself in his shoes. You, you find yourself awake from the dead, but, but then you know that there's still a second and final time to come where he will actually now die permanently and stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, this is, I mean, to put it into some context, there's a very subtle, and but it looks beautiful. It's very subtle. It looks beautiful, but it's a lie in our culture. And the lie is this, that we can learn to live with loss by embracing the transformative power of accepting death. And this comes from people who believe that there's nothing after this life. And so what's the alternative? You have to find some way to reframe death and your sadness to somehow make you more beautiful and bring more meaning into this life. And so you accept your end and therefore it goes backwards to you helping try to live a more full life and yada, yada. And it sounds beautiful, but it's a lie. Our culture attempts to reframe our mortality by making it something beautiful to improve our lives here and now 
before we die. And so you find ways to frame death, to find a narrative that makes sense of death for this life. And you don't think about death in the scheme of eternity. Our culture attempts to normalize death, to accept it. But Jesus, in his response even to death and what he does, he's saying, no, there's nothing normal about death. We were never meant to die. Death was never meant to be. Because if we see death as normal, it may prevent death from having its full effect on you to soberly ponder eternity, life after death. The gospel says, not just learning to live with loss, but learning to live with loss with hope. Jesus would be the first to say, I understand your void. I understand your pain and how much you miss that person. But he doesn't end there. He allows us to live with loss with hope. And this is why we must look beyond this miracle of Lazarus' resurrection to the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. And this is why we have to look to the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that left an empty tomb in history. Because Jesus, I think all the more because of Lazarus, his experience with Lazarus, he's determined to go to the cross and be vindicated by the Father to overcome sin and its most most painful symptom, which is death. Death is, remember what Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Death is just the symptom. It's the ugly fruit of the root of sin. And so imagine, imagine if you could find the cure for cancer. Imagine if you could find the cure to prevent heart attacks. Jesus is the found cure for sin. As much as you might want to find the cure for cancer or to prevent heart attacks, Jesus is the found and proven cure for sin. And so the Christian who faces the death of a loved one who believes in Jesus Christ experiences a beautiful, mysterious tension. The coexistence of the deepest grief, but the highest and brightest hope. So I want to end with a letter. He was a young minister at the time of his death in a Nazi death camp. Uh, Hermann Lange, a German minister. And he wrote to his parents the day he died. Listen. When this letter comes into your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer, I am first in a joyous mood and second filled with a great anticipation. God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from Christ. I am amazed. In Christ I have put my faith. And precisely today, I have faith in him more firmly than ever. My parents, look up the following passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 14, 8. Look anywhere you want in the Bible, and everywhere I find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. 
What can really happen to a child of God? Of what indeed should I be afraid? Everything that till now I have done, struggled for, and accomplished has at bottom been directed to this one goal, whose barrier I shall penetrate today. I, no eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. For me, believing will become seeing, hope will become possession, and I will forever share in him who is loved. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What is it all going to be like? The things that up to this time I have been permitted to preach about, I shall now see. There will be no more secrets nor tormenting puzzles. Today is the great day. From the very beginning, I have put everything into the hands of God. And now he demands this end of me. Good. His will be done. And so, until we meet again above, in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. And so, may all of us also be able to sign off on similar letters with similar faith. Let's pray. Lord, be our greatest comfort in life and death. We're so grateful for this history that you've left us of our Jesus, our Savior, and his very real, descriptive, honest um, posture towards death. Thank you for the community you give us, the church find comfort. Thank you for the empathy of Christ. And thank you that our hope and comfort is real because it is secured by Jesus's death and resurrection. So become increasingly all of our greatest comfort and hope. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.